first of all, I just want to thank you all for coming. I want to remind you all, this is a museum of history, biography, and portraiture. It's not a natural history museum, and I was really bad at science. So if there are any untenured physics professors here who want to score points, you can feel free later. Um, I also want to thank you for coming to the National Portrait Gallery to celebrate the end of summer and to start off with an Einsteinian analogy about time and velocity that summer goes by in about two days and February takes six months. So whereas we start off after Labor Day with Albert Einstein, that may be appropriate. This is Albert Einstein looking slightly mournful in a picture of 1944, end of World War II. Um, Einstein sort of pioneered the modern view of the dotty, slightly eccentric scientist. Although his hair is pretty well tamed here, we know him from the familiar photographs where it's kind of wild. He never wore socks and he cultivated a kind of out-of-it persona which belied the fact that he was incredibly shrewd. And as with most portraits, as with most public portrayals, there's a good amount of a pose involved that is protective camouflage. Einstein is one of the most self-sufficient people that I've ever read about as an historian of, of biography. Um, and a really fascinating case study in how you analyze genius. Born in 1879 in Ulm, Germany, his, his father and his uncle were electrician. Uh, uh, they ran an electrical firm which was just big enough to be almost successful. Um, they were always on the cusp of making it big, but unfortunately as a family firm, they, they got wiped out by the large conglomerates in Germany that were coming along, Siemens and, and, um, and the spark plug company, Ian. Spark, German spark plugs, block, Bausch. Um, and thank you. And so the, the, the family situation was upper middle class, but under threat. And Einstein led this kind of perilous existence. Um, he demonstrated a really early aptitude for science. He was given at about age five. Uh, recollections vary. It was either a magnet or a compass. They are, of course, the same thing. And he, he wrote later about becoming fascinated with the notion of the magnetic field, uh, a, a, a concept that would, would, that would fascinate him throughout his entire life. And of course, not only the magnetic field, but also the whole concept of the field, the unified field, as it were. Um, unfortunately, for it's, it's not true that he was a bad student. It's not true that he failed math. He was he was, in fact, brilliant. But what he was, he was idiosyncratic and almost mulish in his stubbornness, his refusal to take authority. And what his teachers were continually angry at him because he, would, he was, to be blunt, superior, distant, and teachers don't like that. One of them called him into their, his class and said, you know, Einstein, I have to talk to you about your behavior. And he says, well, I don't, I'm not doing anything. And he goes, I know, but you're sitting in, your, in the back of the class and I know what you're thinking. Um, and so that there was this element of distance with Einstein, which, which is almost preternatural. And, and, and you can read backwards and see that as the fount of his genius. One of the interesting things about him was that he learned to speak relatively late. He, he and, I, and I don't know whether there's any linkage here, but he, he learned to talk much further along than, you, than children usually do. And he developed this habit of sounding words out, sounding out the conception of what he wanted to do. And I, I'm, I'm perfectly willing to, to draw the leap here that Einstein was a, almost an intuitive scientist, 
Um, although he was good at math, he was never as strong as he was supposed to be. He never had the mathematical ability because he was conceptually so strong in imagining both everything from the atom to the cosmos. He um, renounced his German citizenship really early to avoid military service in part. He, he detested regimentation. He didn't like the notion of being in the army, not really because it was anything to do with the military, but it was regimentation. Um, his, his family had moved to Italy. He was left behind. He found a way to go to Italy, get out of school. He led this kind of peripatetic existence of, of self-teaching. Um, he got himself, he passed his exams, he gets himself into the Zurich Technical Institute and starts to do pretty well. He also at that point meets a young woman named um, Maleva Maric, who is a kindred spirit in terms of A, being independent, she's Serbian, living in, in um, Switzerland, and also very interested in physics. Um, and they, the romance between the two of them blossoms. They have an illegitimate child. Um, who is put up for adoption and disappears, may have died, may have, may have been moved on. There's a kind of a mystery about her. Einstein, curiously enough, never speaks about her, which is one of the other sides of his autonomy. He's so self-contained that it's very difficult. He, he is very reticent about revealing emotions. Um, he, because he has no family money, because they're scrimping, because the two of them are together, he gets himself, he gets the diploma, he has no job because he's alienated a lot of the other physicists and the other scientists. One of the things that he did was, in order to get patronage, he would write physicists and tell them what they were doing wrong, and that he, they should, nonetheless, they should appoint him as his lab assistant. This uh, doesn't work, and he spends two really bad years in Switzerland just getting by until finally a family friend gets him the famous job at the Zurich Patent Office, in which he takes in the early 20th century. And the patent office was great for Einstein because having worked with, with electrical machinery for his, his family firm, he was perfectly at home with it. And so he's examining this stuff, and it, it's really kind of classic. He's looking at all these practical applications of electromagnetic technology, and at the same time, he's also working with his other hand on physics problems. Um, he wants to get a PhD at the University of Zurich, which he could do just by submitting a PhD. He didn't have to do anything else. Um, and he does it. And 1905 is Einstein's Annus Mirabilis, the year that he comes um, to public and worldwide attention. And it's interesting. It's called Einstein's Annus Mirabilis Miraculous Year, which is an interesting literary reference because John Dryden's great poem, Annus Mirabilis, refers 1666, which is the year that Newton, sitting in a garden in Cambridge, saw the apple fall and invented or discovered gravity, a theme that would preoccupy Einstein not only in 1905, but for the rest of his life. Um, so you have this weird connection across time with the two of them. Um, Einstein gets his PhD in 1905. Um, he's fascinated with the notion of proving the existence of atoms, which is still up for contention. Um, there's, there, there's still holdovers from old Newtonian physics. There's the, the classical um, empiricism that if you couldn't see it, it didn't exist. If you couldn't demonstrate that it existed, it didn't exist. Einstein is fascinated with that. His dissertation is, is a way of proving, um, using a sugar solution, using the, the existence of, of atoms that way. He publishes a very important paper on what's called Brownian motion, which proves the activity of molecules, molecules in moving very small parts, very small microscopic pieces of, of pollen. 
Um, he publishes a, a very important, we'll come back to it, essay on the photoelectric effect and, and the, the light quanta. And of course, 1905 is also the special theory of relativity, which gives birth um, almost as an afterthought to the most famous equation of all time, which is the one that everybody knows, E equals mc squared, energy equals mass times the speed of light squared, based out of Einstein's attempt and successful attempt to prove that the speed of light was constant and the relative positions would, um, would give you different results, but that, the, but that the speed of light remained at roughly 300,000 kilometers a second, and that it's the perception of the viewer that would change, and that time literally would run slow as you approach the speed of light. These things crash out onto a more or less unsuspecting scientific world, and Einstein becomes instantly a success, something that he yearned for since, his, since early days. He, he makes the round of the universities. He's appointed, he has basically has the opportunity to pick or choose and ends up after some shorter stints, he ends up in Berlin. Um, and this begins, 1905, he had published before, but 1905 to roughly 1922-ish are the heyday of Albert Einstein's. Overall in his career, he publishes over 400 books or articles um, on science alone. Um, so he's in Berlin. He, he's, he's publishing on, on a series of topics which are just too infinite, even, too infinite even to begin to approach in, the, in this format. The one that I like is around 1910, he wrote a paper about why the sky is blue, which is because blue, the blue end of the spectrum um, is reflected and diffused in the molecules in the air in a way that the orange and the red spectrum isn't. So we see the sun as a disk, but the rest of the sky is blue. Um, and I think that that's kind of nice and, and, and charming. He's, and he's working on, again, going back to the, to the notion of gravity and the, and the theory of special relativity. Special relativity is called special relativity because it's constant. It's the speed of light. But he begins to get, he becomes interested again, going back to, to Newton with the idea of gravity and how going, how space-time, um, how the cosmos works. So you have Einstein acting in 1905 as a fulcrum, really, between the classic world of Newtonian physics, um, the calculus, um, Euclidean geometry, and then setting the stage for what came after, which is the special theory of relativity, theories of the universe, and quantum mechanics. Um, between about 1910, he's fascinated with the idea of, of of gravity. Between 19 and 10 and 1915, he works on um, the theory of the general theory of relativity, which goes from the finite atom, it takes him now into cosmology, where through the innovation of realizing that time equals speed, time equals velocity, he adds another construct to the notion of space, which is space-time. And he discovers that, or he has the intuition again, that acceleration and gravity are essentially the same thing. Um, and that gravity is not caused by mass, but instead, as Newton had it, but instead by the interaction of space-time. And as the analogy has it, space-time tells mass how to move, mass tells space-time how to curve, so there's this great movement through space. Einstein, of course, was working, and before we know, if you saw that story last week about they released a new map of the number of universes in the universes, um, Einstein was, was confined by the notion that there was only one universe, it was ours, it was fairly finite, it was constant. And he introduced the notion to explain why we weren't collapsing as we fell through space the, with, the, with the cosmological constant, which he later, as we learn more about the, the, the extent of 
space. He, he later said that it was the biggest mistake he ever made, except the cosmological constant always seems to be coming back in terms of finding ways and why the universe, why space holds together. So Einstein, at that point, it's 1915, he and Maleva had, had divorced um, about a decade earlier. There's some speculation, and there's, this gets into to, um, gender politics, that she had, in fact, been his co-worker, especially on special relativity. Um, there's not really any evidence for that, and I suspect, and I, I'm agnostic about it, there's no documentary evidence. What I think happened was that Maleva provided him with the bridge as a helpmate who was incredibly interested in physics and getting himself out of a kind of fraught domestic situation with bourgeois parents who wanted him to go into the family business. And Einstein, and this is the other side of being self-contained, it can lead to coldness, that at a certain point he didn't want to have to deal with those having a real co-partnership, but certainly an intellectual co-partnership with his wife, and they divorced. In terms of when they, they separated at first until finally Einstein realized he needed to remarry because he... Again, this is not a, a particularly lovely trait, but it's an early 19th century trait, which I hear still persists. He needed somebody to take care of him, so he decides to get divorced um, in around 1910. And one of the things when they're getting divorced, because he still doesn't have much money, he tells her, well, look, I'm bound to win the Nobel Prize. So when I win the Nobel Prize, you get all the prize money, which then is now is a, a huge, amount, huge amount of money. And I think it's nice that she, she recognized how, what a genius he was, and she says, okay. And sure enough, in 1922, Albert Einstein wins the Nobel Prize in physics um, for a prize held over from 1921. And it's interesting because he was not awarded the Nobel Prize for either of the theories of relativity. He was awarded it for the photoelectric effect of 1905, which is the joker in the pack because everybody knows E equals MC squared and the notion of space-time. If you watch Star Trek movies, it, it, it enters into that. But it's the photoelectric effect that... that that Einstein wins the Nobel for. And it's, this is, again, the next divide. Einstein was the divide with old classical physics and, and, and Euclidean geometry. He breaks the mold, moves us to the next stage, continues doing valuable work, but by opening up the whole notion of the quantum, i.e., what the atom was doing inside its shell, what the behavior was from the nucleus, the electron, and all the other little things, and believe me, they were little, um, that were going on inside the atom in terms of the dispersion of energy, um, Einstein now concentrates on that. And the photoelectric effect is that the, the light can act both as a wave and as a particle of energy is the thing that Einstein discovers. And that opens up an entire new can of worms, if you will, um, that we're still dealing with today because you're dealing almost with the realm of pure statistics, or not almost, you are dealing with a realm of pure statistics, you're dealing with probabilities, and you're dealing up until relatively recently with large teams of scientists, um, a very difficult analytical conjectures about what's going on in terms of atomic and subatomic particles. And this is where Einstein, this is the big split in Einstein's career. He wins the Nobel Prize in 1822, long overdue, by the way. Anybody who thinks there's not politics in science is wrong. Einstein had made enemies. Um, there's more than a tinge of anti-Semitism in the way in which he's received. The German scientific establishment uh, was allied to state power, and under the, in the Nazi era, there's a great deal of unlovely behavior. 
Einstein's Nobel is delayed long after it should have been granted, but he wins it in, in 1922. Um, let me just say something briefly about celebrity here. I don't, can't think of a single scientist today or anybody else who would receive the worldwide impact that Einstein's imperfectly understood, imperfectly explained theories had, that there's a, that the, the receptivity, the, 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 the appetite of the public for Einstein was equal that of other great celebrities like Babe Ruth or Charles Lindbergh, the front page behavior, the, the breathless journalistic interview. It's the beginning of the age of celebrity, and Einstein is the scientist who captures the imagination. It's hard to conceive of who those would be today, in part because I don't think in terms of science we have the lone genius anymore. We had Lindbergh, the lone aviator. You can still have the, the lone adventurer, but the lone scientist is likely to be a conglomerate at Berkeley or the Cavendish Library or some, or Laboratory or somewhere else. But Einstein captures the imagination precisely because what he seems to be saying is so earth-shaking. But what he's also saying is also incredibly misunderstood. They're going back to the special theory of relativity, and this has been battened on by a variety of political com commentators. There's the notion that the theory of relativity in both cases means that nothing matters that it's where you stand, it's your perspective. So there's this element, it's not relativity, it's relativism, that my opinion is as good as yours, so to hell with you. Um, and that leads to a lot of problems in politics, um, among other things, particularly when you use, you ground it in the misunderstanding of a scientific theory. The point with the special theory of relativity is that Einstein was determined to prove that the speed of light was a constant. And he did that. So there's nothing relative about it. It's a constant. It's your, it's your relationship to something that's going um, at the speed of light that counts. And that actually does change. So the, the kind of this is upside down. The same thing happens when Einstein's quantum effect goes, is received by the next series of scientists, particularly Heisenberg and the well-known Heisenberg uncertainty principle. What Heisinger discovered, and this is the big, this is where Einstein splits, having invented quantum mechanics, Einstein then splits with everybody who comes after him, whose work is enabled by him, because he doesn't believe, Heisenberg says, the, the theory is widely understood to mean that if you observe something, that changes the nature of the experiment. Well, that's not what Heisenberg said. What Heisenberg said was at subatomic levels that you cannot see the, the, the familiar pattern of the atom as electrons and planets moving around the sun that we take from our solar system is inaccurate. There's this cloud of energy, the quantum, and electrons will move from state to state but you can't predict them. You can't tell how they're going to be there. It's only when you observe them that they're in one particular state, and that's all you can say. You can't say how they got there. And this is where Einstein goes back to his almost conservative roots, his desire to save, to, to save the structure of, of, of rational science that began with Newton, which is Einstein doesn't believe, and this is how he started, of course, his own career in dealing with the atom. He doesn't believe that you can't show cause and effect. As he put it famously, God does not play dice. And that if you had an electron that was suddenly positively charged and moved to another, another layer or another sphere in the atom, atomic structure, you should be able to show it. And the fact that, that, that Heisenberg and Pauli and the other physicists, the quantum, were willing to take a gamble, take the jump that Einstein couldn't. And what he did was he spent the rest of his, his career roughly 25 years working for what, toward what he was called the unified field theory, a way of unifying gravitation, electrodynamic, elect, 
the thermodynamics and all the rest of it. It's some subatomic levels. And there's essentially the inter there's an interpretation of Einstein that after around 1825 he failed as a scientist. But what, what, what I would like to emphasize is he kept looking for something which may or may not be there. Whether that means he failed or not, I don't know. But what is clear is that the dialogue with Bohr and the other physicists was incredibly fruitful in pushing them towards what we now know as the, the, the discipline of quantum physics. But if you, if, and this is artificial, I'm, but I'm going to now sort of shift towards Einstein's public life because going back to the notion of his celebrity, you get Einstein as becoming a really important public, fi fi uh, public figure in the, in, the, in the kind of institutionalization of science. There's a tremendous bidding war going on for his services, and it's becoming impossible for him to live in Germany. He was born a Jew. Um, his family was secular. He never really attended um, synagogue. Uh, he had a kind of ethical and cultural identification with being Jewish. Um, he was a pacifist. But he was only a pacifist until Hitler came along. Um, he espoused a kind of one-world government, which again is interesting if you think about his desire for a unified field, something that would tie together all of nature. Um, he had these kind of slightly woolly-headed, intellectualized views that everybody could live together and it would allow Albert Einstein the living space in which he could continue to work unmolested. But it's untenable for him to remain in Germany. They leave in 1935. He's remarried to his cousin, who's a widow, who took care of him. Um, she, was, she was quite the pistol. She used to charge people autographs, a dollar or two for an autograph for him. And man, and she, but she was the kind of stage manager that he really needed. She protected his space. And there's this bidding war in America for, or worldwide for his services, and he ends up at the brand new Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, which was perfect for him because it left him alone. Again, Einstein was not, as the British say, clubbable. He was never interested in associating with other physicists. He was very friendly. He got on well with everybody. One of the great moments in his life, to my mind, was he became an American citizen, and the judge in Trenton, New Jersey, who had swore him in about five or seven years later, had a big party. He had passed. The judge had sworn in like 10,000 new citizens. So to mark that milestone, he invited everybody to come to Trenton for a big party. And Einstein showed up with his family. And one of the most famous men in the world shows up at this public park. And Einstein, the, the mayor, everybody else is agog. Of course, he becomes the center of attraction. He has a great time. He eats ice cream, has a great time, and goes back to the little house on Mercer Street and the Center for Advanced Study to do his work. Um, Einstein, during the 30s, becomes a kind of ethical figure. Um, he, he, as I say, was not religious in the conventional sense, but as the statement, God does not play dice, he had a strong almost, I guess you could almost go back to the deists and say that God set things in motion, there must be a purpose and an order to them. And he becomes a force for kind of humanitarian good in a kind of general way. And you, a lot of people have made fun of him for this. It's easy to make fun of intellectuals in their, and their political views because they tend to be completely idealistic and completely unrealistic. This draws the attention of a variety of people um, who think that if, if, if you believe in one world government and pacifism, you must be a communist. And his FBI file, which is rather horrendous to read um, because of the unsupported and unexamined um, material that's dumped into it, starts to grow and grow. Einstein, of course, his great public act, for good or for ill, is that towards the, the beginning of World War II, uh, he and Leo Szilard, another physicist, write Franklin Delano Roosevelt and say that E equals mc squared essentially means that you can make an atomic bomb, that you can split 
matter, you can split the atom, and that will release a tremendous amount of energy. And Roosevelt immediately acts on that and sets up the Manhattan Project. Um, Einstein did no work. Um, people sometimes think he worked on the Manhattan Project. He didn't work on any of the, any of the governmental projects because he, temperamentally he wasn't suited to it. And at that point, he also was seen somehow as a security risk, although what security risk meant at that time, given, given the virulence of the security apparatus, is very hard to know. Um, he continues living in Princeton, New Jersey, a nice bucolic existence. It is true, apparently, that he did help out. Little, there was a little girl who stopped at his house and asked for help with math problems, and he did help her out. Um, there's a couple of other instances where the, the reporter for the high school paper just stopped in and got, like, scooped the world for an interview for Einstein um, in the late 1940s. And, you know, this 13-year-old this high school sophomore managed to get himself a byline in all the major European and American papers with an interview with Einstein. And he had, again, this kind of avuncular feeling that you look at when you see him now. Again, um, this slightly dotty, absent-minded professor who nonetheless was sharp as a tack and was more than happy to pose as a slightly dotty professor because it, again, gave him a space in which he could work. He dies... Um, of an aneurysm in, in 1955, um, it, and when, they, when the nurse, when they found him, the, it, there was a, a, a pad of paper on the bedside where he, his last act really was to write down another series of equations, again, attempting to statistically prove the existence of the unified field, the unified field that he'd struggled for 20, 25, 30 years to, to, to reach, to, to, to bring in a fulfillment. And I just like that notion that he's working to the end. And I'd also just like to conclude by going back to this notion that gravity and falling, that Einstein's theory of the universe means that we're perpetually falling, that we're perpetually moving and going back to the Newton and the apple. But if we're always falling, we're, we're never fallen. We're, we're never reached that state of sin that we see in the Bible. The apple never falls. We don't eat the apple and are corrupted by it. Instead, the pursuit of the unified field becomes a way in which we combine our intellect and our humanity to reach what we've never really wanted, but which we lost, the garden, the garden of the unified field, the garden of equal and harmonic relations between nature and people. Thank you. Yes. Did, did Einstein continue to live in Germany during 1914-1918? Yes. And actually, that's, I'm glad you brought that up, because that's interesting. Um, one of the, the fascinating things about World War I is that the scientists were the only people who maintained any kind of solidarity toward what the pre-war hope that, that of, say, the labor movement that you could overcome national difference. And there was this incredible subterranean um, interchange between the scientists, particularly, amazingly enough, in England and, and Germany, where they were smuggling papers through Niels Bohr in Denmark. Um, and there was this, this constant intellectual ferment. Einstein more or less sat out the war, as you'd expect. And the really cool thing to me is that the, the unified, uh, the general theory of relativity there were three tests for it, and dealing with planetary motion. And the, the, the final test in, in, in 1918 was done by an English astronomer, physicist named Eddington, when there was, a, was an eclipse of the sun. And he, he did 
so essentially the transits of the planet of Mercury to confirm Einstein's calculations about what should happen. Einstein never did experiment. After, I think, his dissertation, he never did practical experiments. It was all theory. Um, and he also, as I said, didn't have the math to do a lot of his calculations. When Einstein worked alone, he, always, he usually had somebody to help him with the math. So this scientist, Eddington, goes off and does the photography and then the analysis of the photography. But the thing that I think is really great about it, for, for people who think that, again, science is purely objective, Eddington was a huge fan of Einstein. So he essentially cooked the books that he had these photographic plates that were taken somewhere in the Caribbean. And Einstein had predicted, I can't remember if it's, there's a deflection of the gravitational waves of, or the energy, of the, the light waves off of Mercury during the eclipse and the sun was going to bend. I can't remember if it was like 0.18 or 0.38. But Eddington wanted to prove Einstein's theory right. So he threw out the plates that, you know, which, which statistically you know, would, 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 were outliers. So it's like, it's like figure skating where you get rid of the Russian judge. And so it, so it moved. It, it, so Eddington comes back and the London Times, you know, new theory of the universe. And it, of course, it's a double coup that Eddington is seen as the helpmate of Einstein's great theory. But I love this notion that it's like, well, I'm going to help my friend Albert do this. Um, and of course, now later there was a more, they, there was a more, um, how shall I put this, scientific, uh, um, uh, you know, objective approach, which did, again, confirm the Mercury curve. But it's, but it's fascinating to me because, of course, exactly the opposite happened, and this has to do with the idealization, ideologization of, of politics under the Nazi era where Einstein, the, the bitter fuse where, where physicists who had worked and, and even collaborated with Einstein under the impetus of, of Nazi ideology broke with him viciously. The, I mean, the anti-Semitic ta attacks, the, the attacks on the theory of relativity as a Jewish theory. But in World War I, there was this underground continuity of science where almost as if the scientists in the midst of this irrationality, and World War I is a pretty irrational war, um, that they were going to maintain their devotion to, to what bound them together. Yeah, and I think, again, there's this, I mean, again, I don't want to make too much of this sort of bio, biographicalization of the unified field, but Einstein, beginning with the, the way in which he's constantly looking for unity is pretty interesting to me. And I also think it's fairly courageous for the scientists during, the, during that period. Yeah. I'm sorry. At what age did he start speaking? I don't really remember. I think it was around five. I think that he always, I think the habit that he developed, I mean, the question was when did he start speaking, and I think it was around five. Um, I think that what he did was um, he was always very deliberate, and I think he always sounded it out. And I think that there's this notion almost that he was shaping the idea. This is what I think is, again, interesting, is the way, you know, thought is, a, speech is a symbol, but Einstein seems to go beyond the symbol to the conception in the slowness with which he would form the, the, the sentence forms. And I think the reports that I've heard is that he always did that. The other thing about him was, although he, be, he could understand and learned English, he, he essentially, I think, always thought and spoke in German. I mean, he, he, he's an element of the root, and this goes back to his self-sufficiently. He's a very rootless, stateless person. Um, but, the, but the element where he, Germany was, and German was how he thought. Once he had the habit, I think he stayed with it. Um, and he was one of those people, apparently, you could almost see him think. 
he, he, he used to, when he was working in the 30s at the Institute, where he and his two sort of collaborators who were helping him, they'd be stuck with a little a problem. And Einstein would say to them in English, well, I'll have a little think. And he'd sort of walk back and forth. And literally, you could almost see, you know, now I've, I'm sure they romanticized it a bit, but you could see him sort of working his way through almost like a machine. Um, and it, it's, you know, ultimately genius, I think, is inexplicable. Um, but the fact that Einstein always rejected authority, at the same time, though, as he craved it, is the, is the dialectic in which he worked. I mean, he wanted, he wanted things to be whole, but he wanted himself to be an individual. I like the notion, for instance, that he's a kind of one-world government guy, but he's the most ornery individual around. I mean, the one-world government would, would, you know, would, would you know, round hole, round pegs, and it wouldn't have worked for him, of course. Thanks very much for coming, everyone, and especially you, Dave, once okay. again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.